welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Morning and welcome. It's wonderful to see you. Thanks for that uh, enthusiasm and that passion uh, as you find your way back to your seats. It's an incredible honor to be in key strategic moments in the lives of churches and communities. And um, in, the few, in the five or six days that we've been here, I have had the incredible opportunity with Merrill to be able to stay with the Rainbows, to be able to have a large number of people pass through their home, um, to watch, to listen, to look, to learn. And I want to say just a few things, and then we'll go straight to the Scriptures. Uh, I want to say, number one, I think this is a very strategic and prophetic moment in the victory story. Merrill and I are very privileged to work with church plants right in the early, grubby, dirty, concrete-filled days of their launch, and normally the three to five years that it takes to get established and entrenched in the community. We uh, are incredibly honored and privileged then to see that community grow beyond the early fledgling, stumbling, stuttering days like a toddler into a fuller sense of a community that uh, the life of God is in, that is reflecting a vision and a DNA, um, and, and begins to feel more and more like the uniqueness that they deserve. But what has been particularly amazing for me this time, and I want to say all of this as a commendation to you, I feel as if this time, these months, are the stamp on the hand of God, the favor of God to say, well done. There is a sense in which a season is drawing to a close, a sense in which God is saying, it is finished, it is well done. Um, the, the task, the assignment, the chapter, the season, whichever vernacular you wish to use, um, has been completed with due diligence, with intentionality, with love, with affection. And uh, during the worship this morning, I really felt God's stamp of applause and approval. Now, please hear me. I'm not a flatterer. I find no value in flattery. Flattery hurts. It's not even neutral. So none of these are words to make you feel good about yourself. You already feel good about yourself. That's obvious. Um, if the rainbows lead you, you feel good about yourself. I, I, I'm saying these things because I believe that these are moments. We have to have those moments like with Jesus, where on two occasions the Father says over him, this is my beloved Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And so often as churches, we go through the milieu, the rock-faced realities, the dust storms of our day-to-day, and we, we, we don't have the privilege, as I have, Meryl and I have, to come in and to watch and to see the favor of God and the sense in which an assignment has been complete. And I really want to, as best as I can hear God say, well done. This is a strategic moment of reflection, applause, and appreciation. And God says, well done. The second thing I want to say just at the outset is thank you for trusting this leadership. In a world where leadership and trust are not often bedfellows. 
where leaders often, whether it's a dad in the home, whether it is a CEO in the business arena, whether it is pastors in a church, whether it's politicians leading a nation, it is no longer assumed that leadership equals trust. And so when we go into context, Meryl and I really forage below the surface to see if there is a trustworthiness amongst the leaders. And I can say with integrity that I have loved seeing the authenticity of these men and women and their trustworthiness. Does that mean they don't make mistakes? Of course they do. Does that mean they're not guilty on occasion of stumbling or stuttering or exaggerating or underplaying? We're not talking about those humanity pieces right now. What we are talking about is an intrinsic God sense that these men and women are trustworthy. They hear from God. They collaborate together around the big ideas. They find God's key steps for the next stage for the community and then walk in it to the best that they can with faith, with integrity, and with passion. And those of you, yeah, absolutely, you certainly can applaud them. And those of you who are new here this morning, who are finding, looking to find a safe place where you can find worship with the Almighty God in a, in a company of friends who with honesty and transparency are engaged in a faith adventure, I can honestly say, if I lived in Adelaide, it would be with ease that I would bring Meryl, my kids, and myself into this community. And I cannot say that many times. Really, really, really. This is a community where the leadership, where the leadership is spacious but intentional. There is focus in their eyes, and yet there is room for creativity and, and, and personal discovery on the great God story. So a commendation, I think, is appropriate, which I've given, and then a, a, a motivation for those who are looking in, at least ponder and pause another week or two, because not only is all of this beautiful, and it is, it's fun. It is fun. One of my highlights in South Africa is on the High Felt, which is Johannesburg, Pretoria area, those summer afternoon storms where it's been dry and hot and dusty, and then the clouds come rolling in, and you watch the great drama of heaven unfold as God gives us this incredible picture of nature at her most exquisite. And so when people are a little nervous saying, isn't this a little bit over the top? I want to say, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. Have you seen God when God does this? I mean, this is good, but when God does it, it's great, you know, you know what I'm saying? So uh, this is a community that I think is on course. I think God is applauding you. I think God is commending you for the trustworthiness. And then lastly, can I say, and I'm sure Meryl will echo this sentiment, well done for being such a remarkable, remarkably servant-hearted tribe or community. We do. We travel all over the world. We're based in Los Angeles, but we have the privilege of seeing many churches in many contexts. And I have to say, I do not know of another church that is as servant-hearted as you all are. Now, of course, if I'm on the platform, people could say, well, it's because people know who you are and, and they want to fuss around you. Well, I could, I, could, I could say, yes, okay, that's fine. But when we arrive here and people don't know who we are and a stranger will just walk up, walk up to us, greet us very warmly and say, is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you in any way? Then I know it's not built around, let's placate the visitor or the guest. It is an intrinsic in, uh, wired into the DNA of the community, and it is rare, and it is to be applauded. In a, in, in a world of post-modernity where every man thinks for himself, 
Every woman is preoccupied with her own safety and her own pleasure to find a community that is so overtly committed and preoccupied to the other is rare. And really, if I can say to all of you, you are to be commended and applauded. It is a value that brings a smile to heaven's face. I'd like to read a portion of scripture uh, with you. We'll unpackage it and we'll land somewhere and, and trust that God will do three things. Number one, I would love to see your love for the scripture increase because of this morning. I want to see you leave with such a passionate desire to dive more and more into the mystery of this great text. And if we've done that and that alone, I think it would be a morning well achieved. Secondly, I would love us to make much of Jesus, that when we leave today, not only is there a desire to study the text, but there is a desire to talk about Jesus on the way home, whether it's friend with friend, mom with dad, parents with kids, but there is some aspect of the mystery and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus that really captivates us, and we dialogue around, even if the conversation is, I'm not sure I agreed with Chris this morning, I do not mind. I just want us to make much about Jesus, and then when we leave, we just want to talk about him more and more and more in his magnificence. Thirdly, both personally and as a community, I hope that we'll be able to see the Spirit of God, the great divine chiropractor, adjust and set in order the things that slip out of Celta. Does that make sense to you? My, my, my chiropractor back in LA knows when I've traveled a lot, because I'll make my appointment, he'll say, all right, where have you been? Because that airplane seat that is designed for midgets does not do me any justice. I arrive with my neck out of bent and my back all bust up and, and the whole thing. And he looks at me and he says, all right, let's work on the hip. And then he starts pushing and pulling and doing all sorts of crazy antics. And I feel when I walk out the other side, you know what? That feels good. That feels good. There's an alignment that's taken place. And I would love some divine alignment to take place this morning. Are you with me? A love for the scriptures, make much of Jesus and some divine alignment. We're good for that? All right. Let's go to the scriptures, please. The book of James. James is right towards the end of the scripture. You'll look in my Bible. It's a little bitty part left right towards the end of the text. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's fine. I'll try and read it slowly so we can engage in it together. Um, I'll read it, and then we'll talk a little bit about who this James guy really is to make sense of the Scriptures. So James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know it is the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let perseverance or steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. Without doubting or with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly man boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away." 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now that's a complicated passage of scripture. So in order for us to make sense of it, we've got to go to the story behind the story. We've got to find out a little bit like forensic investigation. We've got to ask some really important questions in order for this text to make sense. Oftentimes, the book of James is too easily dismissed as wisdom literature, a set of random, disconnected thoughts, ethics, and ideas, and if we get those ethics right, we'll be a really nice person. In fact, we may even be a good Christian. Is that what James had in mind? Well, let's find out. Who is James? There are four Jameses mentioned in the text, in the Bible, and most theologians would say, it's the fourth one. And the fourth one was Jesus' half-brother. Well, that's interesting, Chris, but it doesn't really help us, does it? Well, let's scratch a little deeper. Let's see, is there anything else we can find that will help us in our text understanding? Well, what we find is that James didn't believe his brother. In fact, it seems like James only came to believe that Jesus, the carpenter's son, was Jesus the Messiah somewhere between the resurrection and the ascension. There's a 10-day window there in which somehow in all of that time, he changed his mind. Well, if that's true and it indicates to be the case, let's just stay there for a moment. Let's work the idea and find out what else we can learn from it. You know what I love about James? I love the fact that he, while his brother was alive, was a cynic, a critic, and a doubter. And I love that because Jesus could so easily have dismissed him, written him off. And sometimes in the modern church, we feel alienated or foreign if we have a doubt, a thought, a critical notion, or we're marginally cynical. And Jesus, in the midst of all of his reappearances after he was raised from the dead, he met with the 12, he met with the 2, he met with the 500, and then Paul, the great apostle, who wrote so much of the scripture, makes this little comment in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, and he appeared to James. So amidst all of the busyness, I mean, he's got 10 days, we go to Perth now, we have nine days with my son and daughter who lead a church there and our three grandkids. I'm sitting there thinking, what on earth am I going to get in, in nine days? They've got this program of ministry lined up, plus Kitty's birthday parties and my daughter's birthday party. And nine days is not going to be a whole lot of time. Jesus had so much to get done before he got taken up to heaven. And amidst all of that, 
500, the 12, teaching, coaching, discipling, walking through the door to meet with Thomas. And amidst all of that, he quietly slips away and he meets with James. What happened? I don't know. But could it be? Could it be that James was sitting at his desk one day reflecting? He'd seen his brother butchered on the cross. He had heard his brother's teachings. Isn't it interesting that John Stott says that there are at least 20 references from the, the gospel of Matthew in James's writings. Now, Matthew wasn't written yet. That means that James was hanging around in the shadows when his brother was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. When his brother was reaching out to that woman caught in the very act of adultery, James was in the shadows, doubting, critical, and cynical. You see, we think, Tony, if we just had a few more healings, people will believe. James didn't. He saw his brother teach the Messiah, the Word of God, and he did not believe. He saw his brother raise Lazarus from the dead, and he did not believe. I think sometimes God allows us to commit ourselves to a journey of doubt and cynicism and unbelief because God can cope with that. But there comes that defining moment like with James when there was a knock at the door possibly. And James says, come on in. And he's busy writing away with his, his he, he was James the Just, he was a learned man. He was a, he was a reader and a student. And he opens the door and there is his brother. And I think in that amazing moment of revelation, he looked now not at the carpenter's son that he teased and joked at and messed with to say, you're kidding. You are kidding me. You say you're the Messiah. You are an idiot. And there is that moment he looks into the face and he sees the scars. And I think the brothers hugged and he sobbed and he sobbed and he sobbed. And I think he would have said something like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And his brother, the Messiah, held him and they wept together. You see, I, I'm not sure I can understand this book if I don't understand the author of the book. If I understand that this is a man who is standing firm and standing strong only because he, the very man he rejected was the man who would not reject him. And I want to say to you today, you may be here for the first time and it may be a new experience for you. It was for me when I came into a church like this for the first time. It was. I came out of Methodism. My first time I saw a band on stage and I was in this class of conscience. God's spirit living within me was leaping with joy to see men and women so passionate about the God who was so passionate about them. And my culture was so deeply offended. How dare they? How dare they be so happy? How dare they make so much noise? And I, I, this, this, this collision of conscience took a while to massage its way through. And I remember being in this little church with these little pews and this band playing and the long hair was the 70s and all of that happening. And I said, Jesus, I need your assurance. Is this okay? And James held his brother and his brother held him. And I think it was a sublime moment. Now, not only is that important, but who does he write this letter to? He writes the letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, that sounds like a kind of a, a historical piece of information. Well, that's interesting, Chris, but uh, it's not really that profound. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's just pause on that for just a moment. 
James says, a servant of God, he doesn't pull the rank of, you know, JC's my brother. Like we hang, you know, it's how we roll. I mean, he makes no allusion at all to any human relationship because he's now encountered the true Messiah. But you know what's interesting, friends, is he makes a little statement that seems so innocuous to you and me. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, that's religious, Chris. That, that, that's, that's how you, no, no, hang on a second. That statement got him killed. It so infuriated the Jews that he would say his brother is the Christ. That the first opportunity they got, they literally killed him. A little innocuous throwaway line that we read dismissively. Oh, well, that's how they write the books in the Bible. That's what you're supposed to say. No, he was writing and announcing his death sentence by saying Jesus Christ. It got him stoned at the temple steps when they pounded him. A woman ran out of the crowd, jumped in front and said, this is James the just. You cannot destroy him. And a man grabbed his staff from the sidewalk, walked over to James and beat his head in one final time because he dared write and say that his brother was the Messiah. Now, doesn't the book change with this, this snippet of information? Isn't this suddenly, wow, and hang on, this is changing the tone ever so slightly. And the Romans were furious. How dare he call Jesus Lord? That means that Jesus is more important than Caesar. Let us kill him. You know what's fascinating? When they took his beaten stone body and prepared it for burial, they pushed his robe up. And they said they were astounded to see his knees were like camel knees. They were knobbly and gnarly and flat because of the endless hours that he spent on his knees day and night crying out for the church. Now when I read that, instantly I realize this is not a book of laws, morals, or ethics. This is a book written by a father to the believers who were in the dispersion, which I'll comment on in just a moment. A letter of incredible love, a letter of incredible affection. It was not a stick in the hand of a grumpy leader. It was a tender hand of affection extended towards a people who were limping. The 12 tribes were in dispersion. In other words, they had been, persecution had come and they'd scattered all over northern, into Lebanon, into northern Galatia, into the Palestine. Now let me try and explain a little bit more of what that looked like. Two things. The first, what we have here is a picture of a telephone call. You know what it's like when you're on the cell phone? Because I'm on the phone quite a lot to different pastors, Mary will say to me, who's that? Who are you on the phone to? Because my answer is going to influence how she interprets the conversation. Does it make sense to you? So, so she is not, doesn't know who I'm talking to. So the fact that he's writing to the Jews is really important because he's using Jewish language and vocabulary so that the Jews could understand it. But then it's as if they're only hearing half of the conversation because we don't know what questions they ask. We do not know what issues they're facing that he's answering. So theologians sit and say, well, this is a complicated book. It doesn't have really good structure to it. Well, it's a telephone conversation between a dad and believers that are hurting. And I think they're saying, it's too hard out here, James. Yeah. In Jerusalem, it was so cool. 
We loved each other. We grew overnight. 3,000 people were added. We met every day. We ate together. God added to their number. This was the coolest church ever. And just a few chapters later, they literally have to run for their lives. They have to lock their doors. They have to close up their businesses. They have to scatter in the night. And I'm sure they thought, hey, this isn't what we bought into. This is way too hard. Sounds like Aussie believers. Way too hard. You know what I'm saying? And so he writes with incredible father affection. And to make sense of this book, friends, it's as if we need to take a video. This is the picture. He's got his 12 kids around him, Papa James has, and he is having a great Christmas dinner, and there's turkey, and there's ham, and there's chicken, and there's beef, and there's salad, and there's vegetables, and there's bread, and there's wine, and it's this incredible, and one of the brothers gets an idea. He says, you know what we'll do? We'll show, we'll record the whole luncheon, because this is a really cool moment. And then it's hours and hours, and then they decide, you know what, this is way too long. Because there's that moment, they're all eating together, and Sarah pops up, and she says, Pops, she says, I'm in this philosophy class at school, at uni, and they're messing with my brain, man. I'm doubting. And he says, Sarah, in between the, the meat and the vegetables, he says, do not doubt. Because a man who doubts is unstable in all his ways. And they're eating some more, and... and um, uh, Joel is a really good-looking stud. I mean, he's like at the surfing club. And, 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 and in between, he kind of doesn't know how to ask it, but he says, Pops, does God tempt me? He said, man, these chicks at the beach, they are like really hot. And, and I don't know, man, I'm feeling like God's really tempting me. And he looks up and he finishes his bread, and it's all crunchy and it's delicious. And he pauses for a moment, has a sip of his red wine, and he says, Joel, God never tempts God himself can't be tempted. Remember Jesus? Remember, my, remember your uncle, Jesus? See, the enemy tried to tempt you. Remember, remember when I told you when you were kids and I used to sit and tell you about Jesus and, and how he went into the desert by himself and, and how the enemy tried to get at him? You see, see, not only does God not tempt, but he can't be tempted. And so any temptation that comes your way is not from above. Does that make sense? And so what they've done with this book, they've edited all the other parts out, and we've got this really cool collection of dad sayings. See? That's what makes, the, makes sense of the book. It's like we've cut out what Sarah asked, and, 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 and I don't know, Rachel and, and Mark are recently married, and things aren't going that good anymore, and, and Pops looks across, because we dads, we have that sense of understanding, and in between the meals, he is sensing that her back's just a little bit towards him, and his back's just a little bit towards her, and there's awkwardness here. Now, they're doing all the outward smiley things, and, and you know, married for two years, but, and then he looks up and he says, the tongue. The tongue's such an interesting little thing. You know, it's like, it's like a fire. It's like a little rudder. And, and, and he goes and he looks across the table and his eyes are tender because he knows the bedroom is no longer a place of pleasure between a young couple who passionately love with each other. It has now become an atom bomb zone where they're destroying each other and they step out with a great pretense of, oh, marriage is so good, but the truth be known, the tongue is destroying their marriage. That's what makes sense of this book. Now, in this text I've read, I think it also shapes the book because he desires and has zones in on a God peace that is remarkable. Let's go back to the scriptures, if you don't mind, and um, let's read it together. Now, all of you who've been at college or written an assignment know 
that whenever you write a good assignment, you say what you want to say, then you say it, then you say what you've said. <laughs> and we call that good. You see? Now, now, what James is doing, he is framing this epistle. He's framing it, and he's saying, this is what I want to say. And then he spends a few chapters saying it, and then he wraps it up at the end. And the key place where our eye jumps to, the key God idea is exquisite. Listen to it together, shall we? Uh, chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You see, these believers had had everything so good in Jerusalem. It was the coolest church ever. The worship was electrifying. There were kids. There was breaking of bread. There was eating. There was house to house. And suddenly they scattered. The beauty of what was exists no more. And so James, with this fatherly affection, this tenderness with which he looks, the knees that are nobbled by the prayers that he's praying for these Jewish believers that are scattered all over the case, he says, the most important gift I can give you is God is unchanging. Immutable is the fancy theological word. He is unchanging. There is no shadow of turning in him. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not Thy compassion, they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever shall be. Great is Thy why? Because the God that was faithful to them in the Jerusalem church, when everyone was together and scrumming down on some really fun adventures, now they're all scattered. My best mate doesn't live down the road anymore. The blessing and the, the, the sense of joy of the corporate isn't there anymore because I'm living in a little apartment in a foreign city. I'm poor because my business ventures were shut down and now I'm struggling. And James with tears in his eyes says, listen, the God that was good then is still good. The God that was faithful to you in feasting times is the God who is faithful during famine. The unchangeability of God is one of the most primary relationships you and I ever find branded into our hearts. Because the same God that will bless us inexplicably. I do not know why. We used to sing in the 70s. I don't know why. Jesus loves me. I don't know why. And the times when I pray for people and they get healed. And the times I ask God for financial provision and I get it and more. And then there are times I pray for the sick and they die. And I ask God for blessings and the, and the, the car breaks down. Two grand's worth of repair. So which are you, God? He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And James, with great fatherly affection, says, please understand this, my beloved children. As they sit around the table having their Christmas dinner, 
I know it's hard going to uni, Sarah. I know it's hard. But this God is the same. Joel, I know what it's like. It was easy to be this virtuous, pure Christian at the Christian high school. But now you're on the beach. And, and now all these chicks are throwing themselves at you. But it's the same God, Joel. And I'm so sorry your marriage is taking strain. I know what it was like how you kept yourself in virginal beauty and walked down the aisle and everyone oohed and aahed and it was glorious and it was magnificent and you went away on honeymoon and it was sweet and precious and the memories are all there, but now it's hard. I'm so sorry. As a dad, I want to step in between my kids and, and, and the assault on occasion. And I feel James is almost saying, I would love to step in front of you and take the hit for you, but I can't because you have to learn God is unchanging. Have a look with me. We've got a few moments left with verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy. What has he just said? He is telling them God is unchanging. Count it all joy. See, when I get what I want, I'm happy. When I obey what he wants, I find joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect. That you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, dear friends, please hear me. That is one of the most important things you will ever have to understand to make sense of it all. If I had a title, that would be it, making sense of it all. What is God's preoccupation with me? He tells me that it is that I may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Heaven's conversation about me is not how can we make him happy. I don't think God ever talks about that. I don't think God ever talks about, well, how can I get his dream to be fulfilled? God's conversation, Father, to Son, and the Holy Spirit, is how can we make Chris complete, perfect, lacking nothing? That's his conversation. Isn't it amazing? The rich young ruler came in and Jesus looked at him, and I think he strutted just a little bit. He came in and, and Jesus said, so what's up? And, and uh, so have you committed adultery? No. Have you looked after your parents? Yeah, I have. And I mean, the more Jesus asks quietly as he sips his little Turkish coffee, the more the rich young ruler is just strutting. You know what I mean? He has a guy, he's got money, he's got affluence, he's got influence, he's done all the things, he's checked all the boxes. And Jesus looks at him with a knowing look as he picks his head up from the Jordanian times or something. And he says, young man, you're rich. Yes, so I am. You know, you lack one thing. And I think he must have stepped back and said to the audience in the cafe, he's kidding. He's a, he's a funny guy. You know what I mean? Like, lack one thing. I mean, we're talking A plus here. We're talking about styling. I mean, I've got this thing going. I've got this whole thing. And Jesus just waits till he finishes his rant and his rave and the chitter chat around the cafe. And then he says, Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. One thing you lack. One thing you lack. You see, folks, Jesus is pretty preoccupied with the one thing I lack. That's what he's after. And he will work my circumstance towards that end. One thing you lack, Chris. 
I will show you myself in times of feasting. I will show you myself in times of famine. I will show you yourself in times of feasting. And I will show you yourself in times of famine. And then we will consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because the trials are there to show you how you lack that you are not complete, you are not perfect, and you lack nothing. My, I came home, my daughter was six years old. Came home from the office one day, and, and uh, she had been given the primary part in the school play where she had to sing a Disney song. Little blondie, blonde hair, blue, uh, brown eyes, just gorgeous little girl. And I walk in the back door, Meryl says, babe, we've got to talk. You know the, it's like, we've got to talk now. So I go through, Meryl says, babe, and Nass is just, she's hurting, her palms are sweaty, butterflies are going. She says, Mom, I can't do this. I can't do this, Mom. I can't do it. So I said, well, babe, what do you think? She said, well, I'll call the teacher and just tell the teacher Nass can't do this. I called Nass over. I said, Nass, I want you to come here, baby. Got down on my knees and I held little hands. I said, you know, Nass, I don't know if you'll understand what Dad is going to do right now. But if I say yes, the lesson I will teach you for the rest of your life is the moment pressure comes, the moment it's too hard, the moment things look a little overwhelming, what you do is you run. But what I want to do is I want to empower you today. That's what I want. I want to empower you today. I said, I want you to get on that stage, tears rolling down her face, sweaty palms. She said, I want you to get on that stage and I want you to go and sing tonight. She sang beautifully. She hit every pitch, difficult song. When the audience applauded as she walked off, her little shoulders were out, her chest was out, and she walked off the stage and we held her because I, that night, could have empowered her to have that which she lacked or to put her in a God story, that which He will complete and perfect in her. I want to close with this. One of the great trials that we will face, all of us, is the trial of loneliness. These believers were scattered. What they had in Jerusalem that was so cool was lost. See, God is so committed to enlargement that if we won't obey Him, He will scatter us. This was an enlargement piece. And there are times when a church grows or a church enlarges and we wonder, this is too hard. It's not like it used to be. I feel lonely. I feel a little disconnected. I'm not sure that my gift or contribution really has a part to play. And it's in those times where we allow the Spirit of God to come in. And you know why we go through those loneliness tests? Do you mind if I answer my own question? It's because He wants His voice to be the loudest voice in our lives. What did David know about him that he could say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? What did he know? I mean, let's say a thousand is three years. What did he know as a king? He could go down to the pub. He could go and scrum down with all the other warriors and soldiers and wounds and marks and tattoos and great accounts of great battles and leave there swirling his beer and feeling, ah, or go and sit down at the fine dining of a king's palace and have the dancing girls come in. And as king, he could choose any girl he wanted for his good pleasure and eat any fine foods of his good pleasure. 
And he could have any harpist play, any musician come and bring whatever song he wanted. He had it all. And yet in spite of having it all, he said something that thoroughly offends me. He said, I would rather have one day in the courts of the king than three years with my soldiers, than three years with the dancing girls, than three years of fine dining, than three years with the musicians. What did he know? And I think he found it as a lonely, solitude little shepherd up on the hills when he sang his songs of praise and the voice of God became the loudest voice in his life. We will all go through loneliness trials. None of us are exempt. And God will put us in that context when the voices of men and women become louder than his voice. He will separate us. He will isolate us. He will alienate us. And sometimes in a church that grows and throbs and begins to become an ever bigger story, we find ourselves vulnerable and say, what about me? I'm feeling lonely. I feel a little disconnected. And it is that moment in time when the voice of our redeeming Savior becomes louder than the voice of men. When the applause of men are quietened down and the accolades of heaven are our loudest applause. Can we pray together? We want to love your book more, your sacred letters written with intimate affection to us. We want to make much of Jesus and talk of the wonder and mystery of his grace. And we want you to adjust us today. Father, through the wondrous work of Christ and the continuing empowering work of the Spirit, we do open our hands to you. For those who are doubt cynics and critics who are standing in the shadows, James was there and he understands. Jesus watched him and he understood. And there came a sublime moment when Jesus stood with his brother and they held each other and they wept and James knew. Maybe today Jesus will meet you and you will know. Maybe the notion that God is unchangeable and unchanging is what you need branded on your hearts. You've been saying, God, where's the God of the feast? And he will hold you and love you and caress you and care for you and say, I am the same God even in the famine. And that's what I want to teach you. Say, God, it's been too hard. And I think if you open your eyes, you look as my little girl did, and she looked in my eyes, and your eyes of compassion and love and affection, everything inside of me wanted to take her out of this challenge. No, baby, you don't have to sing. No, 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 you don't have to do this. This is too overwhelming. It's too scary. And you'll see the eyes of compassion. You don't have to, but he won't say that because he wants to complete you, perfect you, and leave you lacking nothing. And I'm so sorry you're wrestling with loneliness. But the only key to the door is where you're so captivated with Him. And His voice is the loudest of all that He will open that door again 
into an expansive journey on friendship. Let him do what he wants to do today. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless.